What do you think Jesus says about himself? He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Jesus, that anointed, that, that's, that's Messiah, that's Christ. Jesus says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm God's deliverer. I'm here. It's now. This is the day. This is the year of God's favor, God's blessing. This is big. This is huge. Jesus also says something about people. He says something about us. Who did he say the good news was for? Did you catch that? It's for us, but what did he say about us? Let me read it again. You listen. Who is the good news for? To proclaim good news to the poor in spirit, to, set, to proclaim liberty to those who are captive, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. What does that say? If, if, if Jesus' good news is for us, what does that say about us? Who, who did he say we were? We're poor. In, does that mean we don't have any dollars at all? No. I think Jesus is talking about poor spiritually, isn't he? Yes. That we can't, we owe a debt to God for our sin that we can't pay. We don't have the resources. Dollars can't pay the debt of guilt before God for human sin. That we are, in fact, are we free or are we captives? captives. We're captives in ourselves, but what does Jesus come to do? He comes to set captives free. Does he come to set free those who aren't captive? Yeah. Does he? He says he came to set the captives free. Right? right. Does, he, does he give freedom to those who are not oppressed or burdened? He comes to give freedom to those who are burdened, to those who are oppressed. So Jesus says something about himself. He's the one. He's the Savior. Jesus says something about us, we're in trouble. We're poor, we're captive, we can't help ourselves, okay? But this is the time for God's favor. God will take our burden and he will free us from it. God will set us free from our captivity to sin and death. God will pay the debt that we were too poor to pay. And he does it in Jesus. Now, how does Jesus do all this? How has Jesus become God's servant in the moment? By what power? Who is it that is on Jesus? This man Jesus, whom we know to be God's son. But he comes, but he's, he says he comes with a certain power. Did you catch what that power was? Yeah? Um, the, Holy the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So three things we learn about Jesus. Well, three things we learn from Jesus. This he is the one, he's the Savior, he's the Christ, the, God's Spirit is on him, and he sets us free. We learn some things about ourselves also. We need to be set free, we need to be rescued, humans do. We learn that Jesus is our rescuer, and we also, is the Spirit of God also on us? The Spirit is on every Christian who believes in Jesus. So can you say like Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is on me? If you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, not only this, are you set free? Did he pay your debt? Have you been forgiven? If you believe in Jesus, you've been forgiven by Jesus, but also God's Spirit is on you too. That's something you share with Jesus. Think about that.
Something you share with Jesus. He knows what it's like to be human, and you know what it's like to have God's Spirit. We'll talk about that more, okay? So go on back to your folks. Just sitting here thinking about that, that's a lot for kids to take in, isn't it? That's a lot for me to take in. Well, let's try. That's a really big announcement that Jesus makes, and, and uh, he, he makes it in a, particular, in a particular place for a reason, I think. And there's actually a contrast between two places, and the contrast between the two places that he makes this announcement, and then you see it fleshed out, that actually it kind of unpacks the announcement a little bit. So we're going to read in Luke chapter 4. We've already started. We've, we've actually heard from it a couple of times now, first from Ben and then with the kids. But in Luke chapter 4, after Jesus' temptation, he returns back to Nazareth. And as we read this section, I want you to, to, in light of the message that he brings and who it is for, I want you to, through listening in, what what conclusions might you make about this town of Nazareth? The way that they receive him, the way that they react to certain things that he says, what might we understand about these people in his hometown that Jesus is talking to? I'm going to begin reading in Luke chapter 4 from, from verse 16. Luke chapter 4 from verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. He goes to the synagogue, and because he's he's apparently a rabbi, and he's dressed like a rabbi, and he he has people following him and learning from him, well, he comes to the synagogue, and, and, um, well, he's a guest speaker that day. So he's, he's, he's seen in the midst of the crowd, when it comes time to do the reading, the head of the synagogue actually invites, hey, sir, would you come? They know him. He's returned, would you come and do the reading? He's a man in the synagogue who's doing the reading for the day, okay? And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops reading there. There was actually more. He could have gone on. The, 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 the rest of that verse in Isaiah, if he had finished reading it, would have said, and the day of vengeance or judgment of our God. And he rolled up the scroll. And he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. He sat down on what would perhaps be the, called the seat of Moses, and he sat then to teach and to explain. Everybody's waiting for the explanation or the teaching from the reading. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were on him. Translation, you could have heard a pin drop. He has read a very loaded scripture with a certain expectation to it, and yet he left off perhaps the part that this audience was most looking for. And then he sits down to explain it, and yet perhaps there's a pregnant pause, that awkward silence, 
when they're waiting for him to do what the rabbis would typically do and quote other rabbis' opinions on the various words and phrases within the text. And he doesn't do that. He sits there as if he himself is the explanation of the text. And it's awkward. And then he says something even harder to grasp. He says, today. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out, coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three days and six months, and a great famine came over all the land because of their unbelief. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And were there also many, many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and yet none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syria. The, the name in the Syrian, an, actual, an enemy of Israel. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I suggested we, we, we ought to read it Wanting to understand a little bit, who are the people of Nazareth? What is this town like? You see, because in this second half of chapter 4, there's really the tale of two towns. There's the town of Nazareth, and there's the town of Capernaum. And these towns are, are different. They're somewhat different in their own culture. The town of Nazareth is a town isolated. It's a town that keeps to themselves a bit. It's a town perhaps for smaller little hamlets and villages around would come to market, bring their, their crops, uh, their, their goods to market and sell them and buy and trade. But, but the town of Nazareth sits in a valley. You could call it, actually it sits in a bowl. And you can be on a ridge and you can look down at, 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 the, at the town of Nazareth and you can look up then on the ridge. And that other ridge, if you went over the other side of it, then you'd be going down to the new and spectacular and fancy and uh, not very godly Roman city of Sepphoris. This was Herod Antipas's new headquarters. He made it the capital city of the region. That's where Herod hung out. And, uh, but, but, but the town of Nazareth is a bit isolated geographically from Sepphoris. Nazareth, because it sits in a bowl among these ridges, it's not on a major highway or trade route. It was a good place to be isolated a bit from all the stuff that's out there. If you wanted to be a little off the grid, but not too far away, Nazareth would be your place. And so they could maintain a more Jewish lifestyle in the midst of a Roman Galilee. Think of it that way. Archaeologically, they've discovered that Nazareth has a high percentage of limestone vessels, cups and plates and bowls and those kind of things. The things you would eat with, the things you would use in the kitchen. A lot more of them were carved out of stone rather than made from pottery. Now, that's 
Interesting. It's a little odd because certainly stone carved vessels would, would cost more than the pottery vessels. And the only reason you, you'd use one instead of the other, I mean, there's some fancy decorated imported pottery that you could buy, especially on the main trade routes that aren't too far away. Nazareth didn't seem to have those. They went with limestone instead of pottery. Why? Well, Pottery was better, pottery was cheaper than limestone, unless you cared about Jewish purity laws. If you cared about the laws of the Old Testament regarding a vessel becoming unclean, if it's a pottery vessel, it has to be thrown away. You break it and you throw it away. But if it's a stone vessel, if it's a stone cup, if it's a stone bowl, a stone plate, you can have the plate cleansed, it can be washed, and it can be then clean, pure again. So the places, the towns, one of the ways that you can learn something about a town is what kind of dishes did they use? Did they use plastic, Pyrex, expensive china? Tells you something about the economics. What do you find in the garbage dump? Well, in, in the garbage dumps and even the ruined homes of Nazareth, you find a lot of limestone because they cared about Jewish purity. They cared about following the laws. They isolated themselves a bit from Rome, and they maintained a self-righteous lifestyle in the ways of Moses. Or so they thought. Very different than Capernaum, the other town in our, in our story today that we'll get to in a little bit. Capernaum is right on the main trade route, coming out of Syria and even further off to Mesopotamia. Anything that comes out of further north and east that is going out towards the Mediterranean is going to come down through that Galilee region, perhaps right through Capernaum, and that's where Levi is collecting taxes, which are not income taxes you might think of. They're customs taxes. Trade tax on all the goods coming through. So there's a Roman garrison in Capernaum. This is very much Galilee of the Gentiles. It's much more of a cosmopolitan place with all kinds of other influences. In fact, I think it's Capernaum where the Roman centurion has actually built the synagogue. So there's, a much, there's an openness. There's a, a mingling together of the peoples of nations that's more common in Capernaum than apparently it is up in Nazareth. So Jesus goes to Nazareth, Nazareth, and Jesus declares himself, and he declares his gospel. And what he declares about his gospel in particular is the good news of who it is for. It is for those who are poor in spirit. That's going to sound like his preaching on the Mount of Beatitudes, isn't it? It's for those who are poor rather than those who are rich and can sustain themselves. It is for those who are captive rather than captors. It is for those who are oppressed rather than the oppressors of others. But especially think of these in spiritual terms, spiritually poor, spiritually captive to sin and death and unable to free themselves. Oppressed by our, by even by the weakness of our flesh as well as the bullying of the devil. We're going to see demonic possession played out here. So Jesus comes and his gospel is for particular people. His gospel is not for the self-righteous. He's going to say later that the physician does not come for those who are healthy, but for those who are sick. His gospel comes to those in need not those who are just fine and waiting for God to come and judge the others. So we, we, we hear something about Jesus' gospel that seems to be borne out a little bit here, and Jesus 
pokes them. He, he seems to almost provoke them a little, doesn't he? Did you catch that? It wasn't them jumping up and, and shouting challenges and questions to him. He seems to poke at them a little bit. And I hope, as you spend time with the Lord in prayer and in his word, I hope there are times when the Lord pushes your buttons a little bit. Does that happen? Do you feel sometimes spiritually the Lord's stepping on your toes a little bit? You should. That's healthy. That's good. Because there's a lot about ourselves that we're blind to that we don't see. And he's doing that here in Nazareth. Unfortunately, they don't respond to it well. How do you respond when God pokes you? Do you make excuses? Do you defend yourself? Do you rationalize? Do you withdraw? Or do you attack God himself or his word for saying, how dare he say such a thing? Well, Jesus pokes them a little bit. They, they, they hear initially, he seems to be explaining this, this salvation, this deliverance in very gracious terms that the audience is, is perhaps a little surprised by, amazed by. And yet, isn't this just Joseph's son? They're limited in their view of him. Isn't this just, I mean, he grew up in Joseph's house, no matter the scandal at the time, and maybe there's a subtle reference to that as well. We're not sure. Um, to be Joseph's son, declared so in this case, could simply be he grew up in, in Joseph's house. Or maybe, yeah, Joseph and Mary were together before they were together. Uh, maybe there's a rehint of that scandal. They know who he is, but not fully. And they're, they're, so they're, they're hesitant about his words. Isn't this just? And yet he says, doubtless, you'll quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. We've heard what you did at Capernaum. They don't challenge him that way. He brings it up. Do hear what you've done there. And maybe there's a little town rivalry here. If Certainly you would do among your own people and among people who are much more worthy for it, among people who are much more careful about the law of Moses and walking with our God than those people down in Capernaum. If you do miracles elsewhere, certainly you'd do them here. Physician, heal yourself. Let's see. You're declaring, you're saying today this scripture of Messiah's deliverance, the year of Jubilee is fulfilled, well, show us, demonstrate that, let us see it. And he says, well, I, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I'm not surprised that you're not receiving me. That, in fact, has been Israel's problem for a long time. And God seems to have a habit. You see it with Jonah, where Jonah himself doesn't even want to go to the Gentiles, and yet God compels him. In fact, it's the, I love the, one of the things I love in the story, here you have this prophet, here you have this preacher sent from God who's run the wrong way, the opposite direction, and now he's on a boat and there's a huge storm, and everybody on the boat is praying. All these pagan, unbelieving in God, sailors are praying to their own so-called gods. The only one on the boat that's not praying? Jonah. God's prophet, God's messenger, he's fast asleep down below. And it's the pagans, it's the ones who don't know the one true God, they're the ones that wake up Jonah and they're urging him, pleading with him to pray. You'd think it'd be the other way around. I mean, imagine you're on an airline and it seems to be going down. Would the Christians be the one calling people to pray or would others be calling out to pray? It's an interesting how did it come to that? And yet, 
in Nazareth as well, they, they, they don't seem to care about God's heart for the nations around them. And Jesus pokes them there. He says, he says, do you remember Elijah? There was a widow that Elijah helped, but she was a Gentile. She was the, all of Israel. He goes to the Gentiles because it's not safe for the prophet in Israel. It's not safe for Elijah in his home country because King Ahab has preferred the prophets of Baal, of Jezebel, to the one true God. And in, in, the, day of Elijah, in the day of Elisha, after Elijah... There were many lepers around to be cleansed, but God doesn't cleanse any of them in the midst of the raging unbelief in Israel at that time. But he does to, in order to show the king of Israel that there is a prophet who can make a leper clean. Elisha cleanses Naaman, who is actually the enemy of Israel. Why would Elisha be helping him? But look what God does. That's the point here. God's mercy extends not to those who are worthy of it, but to those who are unworthy but needy. Messiah comes. That's who Jesus says he is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He says, I'm the one. And I come not to those who are worthy, but to those who are needy. His gospel is for the poor, not the self-sufficient. His gospel is for the captive, the oppressed, not the well-behaved and the righteous. And that offends them. The fact that God has a heart for the needy whom they don't seem to care about. That's the point. Jesus tells this story, which is right out of the Old Testament. He's not made anything up. These are some of the wonderful examples of God's mercy in the Old Testament. And when he brings that up, they're, they're reading between the lines here. That's why I think there's a comparison between them and Capernaum. They may not be as wealthy up in Nazareth as down in Capernaum, but they're closer to God, you see. And it's not a matter of elevation. It's a matter of we keep God's law. We're good people here. We're good God-fearing church people here. We're not like those sinners down in Capernaum, mingling with the Roman oppressors. And yet Jesus suggests, could this be again a day when his spiritually poor, captive, and oppressed actually could include Gentiles rather than these good folk of Nazareth? You see, the gospel is for those who are weak. The gospel is for those who are poor. The gospel is for those who are needy. The gospel is for those who are unworthy and yet will believe. Jesus says, today, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As he sits there. He is the fulfillment of the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's the one who is the anointed. The scripture is fulfilled in his day, but I would suggest to you there's something more than that. As I, as I hinted with the kids, there's something more than that, that that is true for that day, but it's also true for this day. And to make that point, let me, let me expand it out in another way that, that God has done this before. There was a time when God's people in the wilderness rebelled against God. And they said, um, they, they, they rebelled against him and his provision for them. And they hardened their hearts. 
And God says to them, he, 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 he says in the Psalms, do not, to a later generation in the Psalms, which are several hundred years written after this episode in the wilderness, but he says then, today, do not harden your hearts as that day in the wilderness when they rebelled against me. So the psalmist years later refers to a today as compared to that day. And then the writer to the book of Hebrews picks up on that psalm. Now, a thousand years later still, and he, and he now exhorts the church. And he says to the church in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, let me turn there so I don't get it wrong. I actually included this in your notes in the, in, the, in the bottom of the sermon notes. But in Hebrews 3 and verse 13, he's just quoted that psalm again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of testing in the wilderness. And then he says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest any, there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, encourage one another every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's taking the today from a thousand years earlier, and he's saying today is still today. It's still that day. This is still the day to not harden your hearts. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, he says in an acceptable day, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you, God says. And then Paul grabs hold of those lines and he says, Behold, now is the acceptable day. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He's grabbed the phrase out of the past and he's pulled it into the present because it is still true. It is still relevant. It is still active. And that's the thing about when Jesus says, Today this saying is fulfilled. In your presence. This is not just reality in the past or something that God's going to do at some point in the future. This is a reality for today. And we think about the Messiah. We think about it in terms of that's something Jesus did in the first century. And his ultimate deliverance is going to happen when Jesus returns. And we long for that day. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him then. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him when he returns. And it'll be wonderful. And between that day and the coming day, we're just going to have to muddle through somehow. But actually, it is still today. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said. It was only, I want to guess, about seven years ago that I, I, I got the, the real impact for today of that statement. Because it is true of Jesus in a unique and special way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Isaiah 61. He is the Messiah. And yet, is that not yet true for you if you are a believer in Jesus? If as a believer in Jesus, having been sealed by the Holy Spirit of the promise, being indwelt by the Spirit, being the very walking around on the earth, temple, dwelling place of the Spirit of God, can you not say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? 
And it might get a little too nervous for us, a little too charismatic for us to say, because the Lord has anointed me. So instead of the anointed word, let's use the word, the Spirit of the Lord has filled me. The Spirit of the Lord has empowered me. The Spirit of the Lord has enabled me. Every believer in Jesus who has been saved by him, been rescued as one who was poor in spirit, as one who was captive themselves to sin and death, as one who was oppressed by spiritual enemies as well as the weakness of our own flesh, our humanity, but has been delivered by forgiveness in Jesus so that our sin being put away, now the Spirit of God himself can dwell with us in relationship with us. Can we not say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us? If the Spirit of the Lord is upon us, for what end? To what purpose? For what aim would the Spirit of the Lord be upon us? To help us, like good people in Nazareth, live a better, nicer, gooder life. I don't think so. Oh, certainly there's a change in life. There's a transformation. There ought to be. There, there, there should be. That's one of the ways that he will keep poking at you, just like Jesus pokes his friends in Nazareth. But there's more than that. There is a, there's an essential mission that we've been given, isn't there? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me, enabled, empowered, filled me, even as Paul tells us, be filled by the Spirit, to proclaim Good news, good news to the poor in spirit around us. You see, we live in Capernaum. We don't live so much in Nazareth. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe in here is Nazareth. That's our danger, isn't it? We can see ourselves as, as clean already. We're good. God's, God's, God's pleased to have us. No, we know better than that. But, but we live in a, amidst an unworthy world. A place like Capernaum, where there's a lot of cosmopolitan ideas exchanged back and forth and traffic to and fro, and yet we have good news to share there. But Jesus goes down to Nazareth. I think down is a hint. You go up to Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place of God's presence. And Jesus goes down to Capernaum. Capernaum's a less worthy place. And yet Jesus goes down to Capernaum. A city of Galilee teaches there on the Sabbath, and they're astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. God's word has authority. God's word will set free. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How many demons are there? There appear to be one. Have you come to destroy us? The demon and the man. You see, the demon's got a hostage here. You can't touch me, Jesus, because I got this guy. You hurt me, you hurt him. You can't do anything. I know who you are. I know what you're up to. And Jesus rebukes him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. That's the point. If you come to harm us, Jesus does the man no harm. Jesus delivers the man. Jesus does just what he's come to do because that's his role as Messiah. And you say, well, that's great, Bob. See, that's his role as Messiah. That's Jesus, not me. I say, that's right. That's Jesus, not me. And yet, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We're the ones who have this message for others so that Paul says, says to us or concerning us, we, we plead with you in Jesus' place, be reconciled to God. That's what we do. In Jesus' place, in his stead, toward others, we urge them to be reconciled to God. We're the ones that he's given that to. Could I say it this way? And, and please, I'm cautious here because I'm doing this a little bit on the fly and I haven't thought through how you're going to mishear this. But we have the ministry of Christ today. We are not Jesus. We are not the Christ, the Messiah. His kingdom is coming. And yet we are his ambassadors. We are his messengers. We are his spokesmen. And it is through us that he speaks to the people around us. The people of a Capernaum who are poor in spirit, who are captivated by the God of this age, who are oppressed by their own sin and weakness, and they need his deliverance. And God sends you. But not on your terms, not on your means, not on your strength. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. We don't need to fear spiritual opposition any more than, we, than Jesus needed to fear the crowd at Nazareth who, who were going to throw him off that cliff. And you wonder if that's a big deal. You've got a picture of that cliff on your bulletin. That was quite a cliff. That was, that was a long fall. And yet, God doesn't miraculously deliver him for after they throw him over. No, he just walks through the crowd. God gives him peace in their midst somehow. We don't need to fear opposition. We don't even need to fear spiritual opposition. Jesus shuts down this demon, and he doesn't do it merely because he's the Son of God. He does it because the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We need not fear. Jesus arose, left the synagogue, went to Simon's house, and Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she, she rose and began to serve. One of the things you see here at a very surface level is in each case, whether, the, whether it's the demon-possessed man, he is spiritually oppressed, whether it's, whether it's um, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law who is physically oppressed. It's the weakness of her flesh. Whether spiritual opposition or the weakness of our own flesh, the answer is the authority of God's word to set free. The good news comes to set free, and you see it. The signs they asked for in Nazareth are seen in Capernaum among an unworthy people. That's the difference. Among an unworthy people, a people who perhaps see themselves as unworthy. And when the sun was setting, oh, I thought I would mention as well there that when she gets up, what does she do? Why, she's been sick. She is drained. You know how it is? Finally, the fever breaks, but how do you feel? Now's the time for a shower and a long nap, right? She's drained. She is wiped out for the rest of the day. What does she do? She gets up and she prepares dinner. I mean, come on, Jesus, Simon, come on, give the lady a break. No, that's how restored she is, first of all. And one of the things you see 
in this, in the, in just a very, a very abbreviated episode here for sure, is something else we see here. I think is that we are, we are restored, we are rescued, we are restored in order to serve. We are restored for what we were made for, which in this case is a simple thing. Simon Peter's mother-in-law does not become the evangelist of all of Capernaum. She makes dinner, but she serves others around her. That's what we were made for. In one form or another, that's what we have been restored and delivered and redeemed into new life to show something of his mercy and grace and power in the serving of others. The sun was setting, and all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Well, that's odd. Why does he want them to say who he is? Well, that's a good question. A lot of people wonder about that question. Commentators go to and fro. But perhaps one of the best answers that actually came out of our Monday group where we get together and just start talking about the passage that we'll be sharing about next Sunday. And one of the men said, well, it's kind of like if you're a financial advisor, you don't want Bertie Madoff's endorsement on your website. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, if you're a a Jewish outreach organization, you don't want the Ku Klux Klan endorsement of your organization. That just doesn't fit. Jesus, as the Messiah, doesn't need the Prince of Darkness's endorsement. They're going to accuse him of that anyway. But what you do see is after the sun began to go down, people came from everywhere. Why did they wait? Give him time for dinner? You know, after a synagogue, it's been a long day, Jesus is going to have an afternoon nap, give him some time to have some dinner, and then we'll show up and mob him with our urgent need of deliverance. No, they come only after the sun goes down because Sabbath is over. And now they can come and they can carry those who are sick and afflicted with them without breaking the rules of the Sabbath because it is actually the religion itself that gets in the way of their coming to Jesus. Now, Jesus is never contrary to the law. Jesus is contrary to their religious traditions concerning the law. And he's going to clash with them about Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath continually in these three years of his ministry, isn't he? But the point simply is this. There's a lot of people that are blocked by religion. Don't be intimidated by that. They've got another religion. Oh, I guess, well, they'll be fine. I'll go find somebody that doesn't have any religion. No, there's plenty of people who are being blocked by religion and yet need his deliverance. And we're the ones. If the Spirit of the Lord is upon you, he will confront you. He will compel you. He will will press you, I suspect, into taking next steps that you perhaps are not anticipating, not ready for, or you're not up to. Are you kind of of afraid of that at times, that God is going to ask of you something that you're really not able to do? Is Is that a fear you've had sometimes? It is for me. 
Sure. And I tell you what, he will. God surely will ask of you things that you cannot do. That's the whole point. It's not about what you and I can do. But look what God will do through you. If you could grab hold of this one phrase, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It is by his power, not by my ability. It is by his grace, not by my skill and talent. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I don't know the right thing to say, but I will come near to somebody. And God will help me. I'll be ready with the hope that I have and let that leak out in my relationship with these persons that he sets me around. I don't need to be afraid of sharing my faith because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. If he's pressing me into a next step, an area of service, something I, I, I kind of hesitate to do because I don't think I could do that, it's not a matter of I can do that. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And there's a, a young family in our church that in a particular way, and, and I'm going to ask them to share a little bit because they, they, they experienced this in a particularly memorable way that... Um, would perhaps frighten you a little bit if that's what God had in store for you. But it's not necessarily, but let's use them as an example. I'm going to ask the Coopers to come forward and to share a little bit about how God has taken them step by step in the leading of his spirit into something that they would not have anticipated on their own.